Welcome to the Mainline Podcast. I'm Adam Jacquez, joined as always by Tyler Burton. Tonight, we're talking diamond sports, softball, of course, uh, having a great weekend, sweeping Texas Tech in, uh, uh, you know, a complete shutout uh, fashion there, which was uh, pretty exciting to see the top 10, uh, top 25 matchup, rather, against LSU this evening that we'll recap as well. Game's kind of live, and of course, OU Baseball currently, as tradition, playing a game live as we're recording, but we'll do our best to cover those diamond sports. And then uh, we'll talk a little bit about some recruiting. Oh, you got a big commit from Michael Hawkins over the weekend. And then uh, we asked for your mailbag questions, which questions you wanted to ask Joe Castiglione, what you wanted to ask Patty Gasso and Brent Venables. And we'll do our best to answer some of those questions a little bit later. But before we dive in, Tyler, how are you doing? I'm doing good, Adam. The uh, two diamond sports could not be uh, going in more separate directions right now. Kind of feel like uh, same story, different uh, different uh, year with softball kind of dominating right now. They're currently, you know, in the in a battle up in Baton Rouge, SEC territory, taking on LSU. Baseball kind of in another dogfight against a mid a midweek opponent of you know a uh, inferior talented opponent. Um, we'll see if Oklahoma can't figure out a way to take the lead going into the ninth inning and see if they can't try to hang on and close out a game for baseball this weekend. But yeah, man, uh, it kind of feels like we're we're in the awkward stage right now of the off season. There's not a whole lot of content coming out of spring football right now. Uh, spring game is coming up here in just a couple more weeks. Diamond sports are in effect. Uh, women's gymnastics is competing for a national championship this upcoming weekend. Uh, so, you know, our, our wishes and, you know, good luck go out to the girls and KJ Kindler's crew hoping to bring up another championship for, you know, the university of Oklahoma, but yeah, man, you got to start with, with softball 36 and one on the year, nine and zero in conference play. They swept Texas tech at home over the weekend. Pitching staff didn't give up a single run in all three games. So the dominance continues uh, for, from collectively from this pitching staff, they're like I said, they're currently on the road now uh, right now. Have a three nothing lead over LSU in the uh, looks like in the top of the fourth inning this weekend. Traveling out to Ohio uh, to to partake in the Miami of Ohio tournament. Not the greatest competition in the world that Oklahoma's going to face this upcoming weekend. Louisville's out there, you know that's a name. Uh, that's definitely going to be a team that has Oklahoma's attention. But we're definitely starting to kind of turn the page to where now we're two weekends away from the Sooners traveling back down on the road to Waco to try and avenge that sole loss that uh, that they suffered earlier this season. So softball is, uh, you know, continuing the momentum, dominating like they, you know, they have been all season long. It's just a matter of, you know, this team continuing to build the momentum, trying to stay healthy and making sure that once we, you know, get into the, the kind of the back half of this uh, Big 12 schedule, they're peaking at the right time. They're playing their best brand of softball, uh, especially once once Bedlam time gets here. Uh, at the first weekend of May, Oklahoma can be playing some really, really good softball once they make the trip up to Stillwater. Yeah, as we're recording, the LSU matchup is kind of in that middle of the fourth inning right now. We use up 3 nothing, so we don't know exactly what the result of that game is going to be. Looks like Sooners are in great position as we speak. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of tough to cover that game uh, for listeners that are already going to know the result of it. But I think kind of my takeaways just so far is that, um, you know, OU is playing a lot more of these top 25 teams in the non-conference this season, which I, I think is awesome. Uh, you love that, hey, they're, they're doing a high level of competition. We get great regular season matchups before uh, a lot of fans even start tuning into the World Series. And I think you're seeing more and more, more OU fans pay attention to softball throughout the entire season. Um, and you, you like the idea of, okay, yeah, they're going on the road in a hostile environment to Baton Rouge and they're playing a top 25 team. 
at the same time, it almost doesn't matter because OU will never play a, really a road game uh, in the postseason because they're going to be in Marita Hines through the Super Regionals yeah. and be in Oklahoma City for the College World Series. And yeah, that's an advantage for OU. People can um, deal with that, you know, as they may national riders, all the ones that are seeing Georgia play in Atlanta or Florida play in the Orange Bowl for football. But I think it's good to see just, hey, you know, this team's going up against the best of the best in the non-conference, even a midweek game against LSU. And what really stands out is the depth of what OU has. LSU's got mm-hmm. a couple of good players here and there. They've got some batters that are hitting over 400. Um, but you look across the lineup and OU's got in their eight hole, um, you know, Alyssa Brito, who'd be a cleanup batter on pretty much any other team. And she's batting eight. Uh, Basically, so, yes. Yeah, you look at that in the lineup. And then you look at, okay, on the on the mound, OU's got three elite pitchers probably the three best pitchers that are, you know, in those dugouts or on that field or in the bullpen. And uh, mm-hmm. so LSU might have one good pitcher, you know, same thing with Florida state, but OU's got three of them. So um, yeah. the depth is just almost like unfathomable for, uh, for this team. Well, and Adam, this is nothing new. I mean, the big 12 uh, conference as a whole, I mean, outside of Oklahoma, you can throw Texas in there. Oklahoma state is definitely with what they've done building up their softball program. It's not as good collectively from top to bottom in terms of the pure talent and the consistent challenge that you're going to see in conference play at a program like Oklahoma. So, but this is nothing new. Patty Gasso has always kind of taken pride in challenging her teams early and often in the non-conference schedule. You know, you might find yourself in a series where, you know, you're you're taking on Baylor, you know, in a three game scenario. But OK, by the way, we're going to we're going to crank things up another level and we're going to send you out to Kentucky to play a couple of games in the midweek. So uh, Patty's just continuing to find ways to challenge the, her teams, because once once postseason play gets here, we have a feeling they're not going to be challenged until they get to Oklahoma City. But once you do get to Oklahoma City, you've got the confidence in your team and in your coaching staff. You've already got a run rule victory over UCLA. You've already got a dominant dominant wins over Kentucky, over Florida State. Hopefully what's going to be you know a nice victory uh, over Oklahoma State, Baylor, uh, and ultimately you just swept Texas a couple of weeks ago. So uh, Patty just continuing to push all the right buttons, put her team in, a, in situations where they're able to overcome adversity. They're playing the best competition. That way once postseason play does get here, I don't want to say it's a cakewalk, but there's nothing new in in terms of what these girls are going to experience. No environment is going to be too big. No stage is going to be too big. The, the lights are not going to be any brighter than they have been, you know, throughout the first four months of the season. So, uh, just again, credit to Patty Gasso for pushing all the right buttons and getting her team prepared to make another uh, run at a national championship. Adam's Coach optimism. Pushing What's a lot we... of buttons. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Bring it back. Baseball. Coach has been pushing a, a lot of buttons and not having the same level of success as Skip Johnson. Uh, we joked about the segment Adam's optimism, which uh, is going to make its return tonight. And, um, you know, I should really look up the uh, the theme music that we had prepped for uh, last year. Uh, we had some little like background music we were going to play for Adam's optimism. And we got to the point where the team started playing so well that, we didn't need a specific segment for me to be optimistic about baseball, but here it is. The team's not doing good. Um, you go one and six, no, six, Oh, you played seven. six games against Baylor and, and K state. Uh, so you go one and five against those two teams, both on the road. What I thought was, you know, the two worst teams in the conference turns out it's probably Oklahoma. Who's uh, that last place team in the conference right now. If you were doing, doing a power rankings and this program, Man, just so frustrating. No consistency whatsoever. Um, but 
let, let's bring some optimism to to the table just to start off and then we'll dive a little bit deeper into how things are, are not going well. Went back and did a little bit of comparison uh, to, you know, hey, where was this team at this same point last season? And the records are a little bit different, but uh, only one win difference. 18 and 12 was where the team was at this point last year. They're currently at 17 and 16. So not a significant difference, but I think it shows that, hey, a lot can change. Uh, you know, a team can get hot. You can start getting, you know, your guys healthy and things can start turning around. It sounds like um, there's some good news in Dakota Harris potentially coming back this weekend against Texas Tech. And you look at what the Sooners have done against some of the, uh, you know, the better teams that they've played. Um, OU has a really strong strength of schedule, which is good right now. Record doesn't show, you know, super great results. But against teams that are currently projected to be in the postseason by D1 baseball, OU's got a 7-5 and five record. Um, now, there's not as much consistency because against teams not projected in the tournament, they have probably about the same or worse record. So they do need to, to find more consistency against those not so good teams to, to rack up some victories there. But I, I think it just shows that, you know, and this is not what I believe. I'll talk about that in a second, but it shows that, Hey, this team does still have the opportunity in front of them to turn things around. They can rack up some great RPI wins against, you know, some really tough competition. And they've proven that, Hey, when they are playing better teams, they get up for those. Will that happen? Probably not. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm just not. I'm just not sure how we can sit here on April 11th and really find any type of bright spot uh, with the way that this baseball team is 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 playing right now. I mean, yes, there there's a few things that you can take away that you can feel good about going forward. You know, some of the young guys continuing to produce, they're going to grow and mature, and you know, continue to play a good brand of baseball. But one of the things, Adam, when we try to – it's so easy to fall into the trap of trying to compare this team where they're at right now to where they were a year ago, and you're trying to make yourself feel good to, you know, still hold on to hope that, okay, this team was, you know, not playing their best, uh, you know, be- baseball, you know, this time a year ago, still kind of hovering around that just above 500 record, and then they figured out a way to get hot at the very end of the season and make a run all the way to the championship series in Omaha. And, you know, while that definitely is still a possibility, Oklahoma, I'm sorry – David Sandlin, Cade Horton, Jake Bennett, they don't have those types of arms in that bullpen this year and in that starting rotation. So if there's one of the things that can really, you know, be a true equalizer, especially, you know, if you're if your offense is kind of up and down, they're not, you know, consistently hitting week in and week out. It's a dominant, consistent pitching staff, and Oklahoma just hasn't been able to figure out a way, you know, whether it's with the starting or, you know, in the late end of the games with the bullpen, being able to close games out. There just hasn't been that level of consistency like we saw a year ago. Um, and, you know, some of that's on the players. Some of that's on skip. Some of that really is just on the game of baseball. And uh, it's so hard to be consistent because there are ups and downs. You've got players graduating, players going to the NFL or the NFL, uh, the, the MLB <laughs> draft. Uh, Kyler Murray there you go so it, it, again I'm I still think you know I, I'm not at a point where any type of worry or I'm not looking at the panic button yet because I definitely think you know Skip is the guy he's a great bass great baseball coach great pitching coach there's a reason why MLB players come back and train with him every offseason so give it a little bit of time we'll see how this team closes out you know the second half of the schedule hopefully they can build up some RPI wins uh, and, you know, get some, uh, build some momentum and hopefully figure out a way to try to sneak into a regional. Obviously, it doesn't look good right now uh, when you look at some of the other uh, projections on where they have the postseason play starting right now. Oklahoma's kind of on the outside looking in, but see if they can't figure out a way to close out this uh, regular season strong and sneak into the postseason. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of at the point where I've got my shovel full of dirt and I'm standing over top of the casket and I'm ready to throw that dirt on the casket um, at this point. You can't go one and five against Baylor and K-State and, and still no. make the tournament, in my opinion. No. I've, I, I'm, I'm just about at the point where I'm saying this season is, is not going to have any type of postseason play in it. Um, no. Now, again, they could quickly turn things around. You get some wins against Texas Tech, some wins against OSU. Uh, you got Texas coming up. Those are all incredible RPI boosters. Win those series, and mm-hmm. things look pretty different. And you do like that. Hey, Braxton Dalta and Jamie Hit look like um, you know a pretty solid um, rotation of your your first day one and two starters in the series. And we're only going to get into our second weekend of Kale Davis coming out of the bullpen. I thought he looked effective uh, coming in as a reliever on Saturday. Um, so there are some elements there. Getting Dakota Harris back is great, but. One step forward, another step back. Easton Carmichael's Eddie Radosovich reported earlier today. He's going to be out for some extended period of time with mono. So this team just cannot get out of, uh, you know, they can't get out of their own way within things that they can control on the field, but uh, things like injuries and things that they don't control are not, are also not going in their favor. So um, just not a lot, not a lot in favor of baseball. How about something in favor of the recruiting world though? Oh, you get to commit from four-star Michael Hawkins, the number two overall dual threat quarterback, according to rivals. Yep. Yeah. Rivals 250 kid quarterback out of Frisco Emerson down in the DFW area, six foot two, 200 pounds, 200 pounds. Like you said, Adam, number two ranked dual threat quarterback in the country for the class of 2024. Great speed, really good pocket awareness, strong, accurate arm that can make a lot of the, you know, pretty much every throw that Jeff Levy is going to ask him to make in this scheme extremely dangerous out in the open field has a really you know he has a knack for being able to make guys miss he's not kyler murray i don't want people to automatically think okay mobile quarterback he's a guy that's you know going to be as versatile and, and as dynamic as kyler was that just simply does not exist but he's got kyler he he's got the athleticism and he's got some of the same tools that Kyler displayed, you know, back when he was an Allen Eagle, you know, a few years ago. So, um, you know, it's it's always a good day, Adam, when you can add an elite recruit and get them to join your class. But it almost feels like it has a little bit more juice to it when it's your signal caller, when it's your, you know, your quarterback that you're able to get on board nine months before National <laughs> Signing Day. So it gives him an opportunity to continue to recruit guys, try to get, you know, more, um, you know, players to come, you know, want to be part of this class. Uh, and, you know, from some of the things that we've been hearing, you know, behind the scenes, the dominoes are about to start falling uh, for the Sooners and more names are about to jump in the boat for this 2024 class. So it's a big get for Jeff Levy and Brent Venables, and we'll see if they can uh, continue to build on this. I think it's he's the perfect quarterback that you want following up a five-star like Jackson Arnold because mm-hmm. he's got an incredibly high ceiling. He might have a lower floor than a lot of guys, but he does have that high ceiling potential. And with those guys, you do want more time to develop and, uh, and get them accustomed to, you know, college ball and, and, and weight programs mm-hmm. and so on and so forth uh, before you have to thrust them out onto the field. And so, um, you know, barring, you know, anything unforeseen like injuries, Jackson Arnold is your guy for, um, you know, Michael Hawkins' first two years on campus. So it wouldn't be until his third year that we're projecting probably at the earliest that he would have to be mm-hmm. a, a full-time starter. So um, you like that, you know, that potential of him being able to develop quite a bit if he does indeed stick it out. We don't see that very often with quarterbacks, but also at the same time, OU's looking at maybe adding mm-hmm. to the 2024 class. Uh, Samaj Jones out of uh, out of Philadelphia making an official visit, a second visit 
uh, here in June. So you may take two quarterbacks and then uh, no mm -hmm. more of the every other year quarterback situation that Lincoln Riley did. So regardless mm -hmm. of whether Hawkins pans out or transfers or whatever, um, just the whole quarterback room situation feels so much better. Well, and Adam, I think another way to look at it too, when you're talking about, you know, not following the same Lincoln Riley model where you're bringing in an elite level quarterback every other year, you know, you're starting to, starting to build the the quality depth in that room by bringing in an elite guy or maybe two uh, on, you know, on a class by class basis. But I think that also gives Jeff Levy, not just the confidence in that room, but it also gives him the freedom and the ability to run that offense the way that he truly wants to, you know, it's not going to be moving forward. It's not going to be like what we saw a year ago where, you know, the quarterback run game or, you know, getting outside the pocket was kind of limited because of the fact that after, after Dylan Gabriel, your backup was Davis Bevel, and there was no confidence in him being able to come in if DG was to go down to be able to execute and run the offense at a high level. So uh, bringing in Jackson Arnold, that's your quarterback too. Now you've got Michael Hawkins coming in 2024. You've already got Kevin Sperry coming in for 2025. That's got to free Jeff Levy in the, to be able to kind of go back to maybe not as run dominant like we saw Matt Corral at Ole Miss when Jeff Levy was there. But you also are going to have the ability now to where you can keep that defense honest because you've got the, uh, you know, the threat of the quarterback run game that the defense, you know, is going to have to account for. So I think that this is a really good pickup for Oklahoma. You know, our friend Josh McQuistion over at Sooner Scoop, he did throw out the player comparison uh, that kind of got a few OU fans riled up a little bit. He compared uh, Michael Hawkins' tape to uh, to Kellen Mond the fight in Texas Aggie and a little bit of DTR in his game as well. So OU fans, I know you see Kellen Mond, you see Texas A&M, the immediate thought is, well, shit, uh, <laughs> really? That's who we got. That's, that's what this guy's going to uh, project to, to be like. So hopefully it's a little bit less Kellen Mond and a little bit more, you know, Dorian Thompson Robinson of UCLA, because, you know, uh, DTR, a really good college quarterback. And when you also think about it too, Oklahoma is going to have the ability to surround Michael Hawkins with with uh, better talent than I think what DTR had at the other 10 positions around him on the field. So again, he's it's still a year out, but I like the fact that you're getting your, you know, your quarterback, your captain, your, you know, this guy that drives the ship, get him in the boat nine, uh, nine months early. And he gives this opportunity, you know, led by Michael Hawkins, Jeremiah Newcomb and this coaching staff the opportunity to continue to, to build on this class. And Adam, I don't think it's going to be much longer before you see somebody else uh, jump on board as well. Yeah. I, I think Kellen Mond under Jeff Levy or pretty much any coordinator at OU probably looks a lot different than he did at A&M. So I wouldn't get too wrapped up on that comparison. Well, you've got Jimbo, uh, the, the Jimbo's the, Jimbo's the quarterback whisperer. So, I mean, I don't know, maybe, yeah. maybe sky is <laughs> the limit. So I don't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You alluded to other commits that might be coming alongside Devon Mitchell, the tight end, the five star mm -hmm. that probably possibly maybe is committing in uh, 2024 rather than 2025. Uh, he's kind of the low hanging fruit, the former teammate of Michael Hawkins there at Allen. Is there anyone else that comes to mind that maybe a commitment from Michael Hawkins kind of helps or moves the needle for the Sooners? I definitely think it plays with all of the recruits that OU sits in really good shape for in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Caden Durham's another one that kind of comes to mind. You know, DeMarco Murray. 
we're starting to see him stacking running back classes with elite level, you know, talent. And, you know, I don't think that 2024 is going to be any different from what we've seen the last couple of cycles, but yeah, Kane Durham is another one for me. I think that also, once you get your quarterback in the boat as well, that also kind of starts to springboard the opportunity for, you know, maybe a couple of elite wide receivers that say, okay, Oklahoma's got their guy. We want to go catch passes and play with this kid. Uh, Let's, you know, let's uh, become part of that 2024 class as well. So uh, yeah, Devon Mitchell, that's that's the low-hanging fruit. That kind of seems like the most likely right now. We'll see how the reclassification process goes for him, you know, once that does kind of come to fruition. Uh, but, yeah, I think uh, it's looking very, very good right now uh, for Oklahoma recruiting. And uh, I, I think that the month of April, once you get into June and July, uh, that, that's going to be big for Oklahoma. I'll throw out a little bit of a wild card. How about Peyton Pierce? Just committed to Ohio State, probably about two hours before we hit record here. Mm -hmm. He's a top 50 linebacker, but he's only about 30 minutes away from uh, Michael Hawkins. So I know he committed to Ohio State, but man, it's, it's kind of like... I hate comparing it to Peyton Bowen. That just seems way too easy, and it's not a, an exact a replica of the situation whatsoever. But just mm-hmm. think about the proximity to, hey, you're the quarterback in your class is, is in your backyard. You know, they already mm-hmm. know each other. Um, making that unofficial visit up to OU two more times before you know, yeah. the season starts and then once during the season and maybe only go out to Ohio State once in that time frame because it's just it's further away. Um, so mm-hmm. having a quarterback that's in his backyard, I think that could make a difference if OU does indeed continue to fight for Peyton Pierce or, you know, we'll see. Maybe they decide to go a different direction, but um, that could certainly help uh, quite a bit there. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, Oakland, obviously, you know, Brent Venables and this coaching staff, they are a very, you know, relationship driven bunch. Um, and that's definitely something that's going to. Uh, hopefully can can bode well with their you know if they continue to pursue you know Peyton Pierce obviously you know Ryan Day and you know James Laurinaitis you know joining that staff as well uh you know one of the best you know all-time linebackers in Buckeye history that's you know definitely something that's very appealing uh to a high school recruit especially you know the number one you know linebacker in the state of Texas and one of the best wrestlers you know nationally in the high school ranks so uh we'll see I definitely don't think that this is going to be a situation where Brent Venable simply gives up there's not a better linebacker coach in college football than than Brent Venables who's just a couple hours north uh, of, of Peyton Pierce's hometown so yeah I, I don't expect that this fight's you know just going to be simply given up uh, because he posts a commitment at it you know nine months before signing day that he's going to Ohio State so just keep on it best thing Oklahoma can do uh, is you know uh, is the success and uh, playing a quality brand of football on the field this upcoming fall that's gonna that's gonna go a lot further than you know, these coaches, you know, selling or watching the the Clemson tape or talking about, well, this is how many guys we've put in the league over the last five to 10 years when I was at Clemson. So there's got to be some uh, there's got to be some proof in the pudding with what Danny Stutzman, Jaron Kanick and some of the other linebackers in that room are able to do this fall. Uh, but I don't think that the doors closed by any means. Make sure you're following us on Twitter at the mainline pod, because yesterday we took to Twitter and said, hey, if you had the chance to ask Joe Castiglione, Patty Gasso, or Brent Venables any question that you wanted, what would you ask them? <laughs> and so we're going to walk through some of these questions that you guys uh, listed on Twitter there, and we'll give our best attempt at trying to answer some of these. Uh, let's lead it off for questions for Joe Castiglione. We actually got the most responses for Joe, which I thought yeah. was kind of interesting because, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously Brent and Patty are, are superstars, and Joe is, mm-hmm. you know, in some regards, but I think there's more He's the interesting things are. 
Yeah, there's more unknowns, I guess, because he's not in front of the media nearly as much as those two. But let's kick it off with SEC Sooner 34. Uh, Their question was, who's on the short list uh, when Patty retires? Of course, this question is for Joe. Uh, I think there's some pretty obvious answers uh, here, Tyler, but who do you have on your short list? I've got one name on my list, and it's her son, JT. Best hitting coach in all of college softball. Uh, He's seen how an elite level championship you know caliber program operates yeah uh, you know he's learned under the tutelage of his of his mom watching her you know lead this team to turn oklahoma softball into just an absolute dynasty in, in the sport so uh, i think the jt you know he, he's i guarantee you he has had opportunities you know to maybe you know elevate his coaching position and you know try to start building his career you know towards the path of becoming a head coach or you know maybe he's turned down head coaching jobs but it kind of feels like we're in a situation where uh, JT is kind of the uh, you know the the heir uh, to the uh, head coaching position for OU softball if and when Patty decides that she's had enough and she wants to step away, which I don't expect that happening anytime soon, especially when you've got Love's Field being built uh, and set to open next year. Yeah, I think that's a pretty obvious one. I'll throw three other names into the mix here just to uh, give it a little bit of flavor. And also, Patty's still you know thriving and, and pretty young um, by absolutely regards. So we could be 10, 15 years before she retires or even longer, depending on, on what she wants to do. So who knows what the landscape of things looks like. Um, you mentioned sure. JT Gasso, but also DJ Gasso. He's an associate mm-hmm. head coach over at Utah. That program's really solid. What does he become? You know, is he the head coach at Utah someday? Is he a head coach somewhere else and develops mm-hmm. a lot of, um, you know, uh, skill and, and just experience doing that. Uh, how about Michelle Gascoigne? Uh, she's currently an assistant at Northwestern, uh, one of the former pitchers. Uh, that helped us win a national championship a couple of years back. Um, and then kind of one that I think maybe some of you fans may have forgotten about. Um, how about, uh, how about Lombardi, Michelle Lombardi out at Oregon? Uh, she's a, you know, former OU uh, assistant. She worked a lot with the pitching staff. So I don't know how that would work uh, with the current pitching assistants on staff, but Tyler, mm-hmm. she's someone that you and I actually got to know a little bit when we uh, yep. volunteered, uh, when we were working at, uh, at, uh, at the uh, ticket office at OU um, mm-hmm. Every year, the the staff gets together and they get to do some different volunteer projects around Christmas time. You got you and I got to spend a lot of time with her, and um, just from the, the interactions that we had with her, you could tell she definitely appreciates uh, some of the advantages that OU has as a program. And so, mm-hmm. uh, she's done a good job up at Oregon, continuing what Mike White built there. Um, mm-hmm. But I think she, you know, has some experience now as a head coach. She could also be a good fit uh, coming back to OU. So, um, just to I think that. I think that it is pretty safe to say, though, that uh, Josie's going to have his pick of the litter when it time when it comes time to figure out who he wants to to choose to you know ultimately you know be the uh, be the next head coach for OU softball when that comes ten fifteen years however however long that wants to be. But Patty's got this thing rolling. There's no there's no uh, there's no indication whatsoever that this train is going to go off the rails anytime soon. So uh, I expect a lot of national championships, a lot of wins and uh, maybe a couple more stadium renovations to uh, take place. Because softball in the state, it is booming. It is at an all-time high, and you've got to thank uh, Patty Gasso and OU Softball uh, for being the main reason uh, because of that. So, yeah, JT, though, that's the one for me. I think it's his time coming up here pretty soon. Certainly. Tyler, give us question number two. Okay, this one's interesting, Adam. Uh, And again, I feel like this is something that OU, the entire fan base has kind of gone back and forth. It's a conversation that happens annually. This question comes from Ryan. How close are we to getting a new basketball arena and a 100,000-seat football stadium with a new press box? Adam, how close are we to both of these things happening? 
<laughs> I, I guess I'll kind of answer this <laughs> separately here. For 100,000 seats, we are possibly further away from that ever happening than, than maybe since like Bud Wilkinson uh, was coach mm-hmm. at OU back in the 50s and 60s. 100,000 seats is just something that will, I don't think will ever happen in my lifetime. Just think about how everyone complains constantly about how easy it is to sit at home and watch the games. You and I struggled with this. We sold season tickets at oh, OU for God. several seasons. Um, seasons that OU was going to the playoffs every single year under Lincoln Riley. And we yeah. still heard tons of complaints about, oh, I, I'd rather just sit you know, near my bathroom at home, near my fridge, whatever. Um, there's just so many elements of that. And it's, it's still a transition because colleges are constantly catching up to the times are they're at least 10 to 20 years behind what the pros are doing to, to draw fans to the game. So um, the, the pros have never been at that 100,000 seat mark. They're moving the opposite direction and colleges are just mm-hmm. now starting to catch up with some of those elements. So that's not happening in my opinion. Do you want to address that one before we go back to basketball? Yeah. I mean, I think it's pretty safe to say, Adam, um, we know for a fact Oklahoma will not be getting an expansion to a hundred thousand seats, you know, anytime in the near future. And, you know, Adam, it kind of, it still amazes me that people think that there's a need for OU to have this massive hundred thousand, you know, seat stadium when in reality, I mean, you, we know it, you know, as well as anybody from our time, you know, selling season tickets, dealing with the public, you know, the fan base on a day-to-day basis that, you know, in reality, Oklahoma has a tough time selling out their current stadium capacity of just over 86,000 seats. So, Again, I know that the the transition going into the SEC, it's going to be a, you know it's going to be a more sought after ticket uh, because the product on the field is going to be better, and we ultimately know that uh, even though 100,000 seats is not realistic, it's not something that OU is going to be going for anytime soon. The new press box, along with the West Side renovation, is is something that is very realistic. It is coming, folks, uh, sooner rather than later, but. Um, again, you know, we, we've gone through this, Adam, you know, the, the hundred and however many, you know, consecutive, you know, games sold out, uh, the, the, the popular streak that everybody likes to talk about. Um, okay. Um, we'll, we'll just, we'll, we'll kind of leave it at that, but yeah, sitting here like a hundred thousand seats, I it, just, in my opinion, that is not something that is realistic in the state of Oklahoma with the current population, with the alumni base, uh, that Oklahoma has. I know that a good portion of the OU alumni base is in the Oklahoma city and even down in the DFW or Houston area. So it is possible that you could get a lot of people in there on Saturdays. You know, Lord knows we do it every single weekend, but again, there's just, there's so many different alternatives right now to, to actually going to the game in person. When you've got all these different streaming platforms, you've got the 75, 80 inch TV at home. You can have your friends over, you've got your fridge, you've got your coolers, you've got your bathroom and, and all that stuff. So again, unless it's Alabama or Georgia coming to town, like not very many people, unless you're just a diehard fan are going to want to go, you know, watch OU Arkansas state on September 3rd when it's 105 degrees and, you know, it's it's not going to be a super competitive football game, especially when you've got other games being played at the same time. So, again, just to put a bow on the football, I do not expect that the 100,000 seat football stadium realistically will happen anytime soon. And, again, Adam, I think you make a good point. Uh, it may not be uh, in our lifetime. Yeah. Basketball is something that is definitely a need, but there's not really an appetite uh, from the fan base to to fund that, really. Now, we heard rumors back when we were working for OU that there was, at one point, a donor with quite a bit of money that was ready to fund pretty much everything, um, mm-hmm. but... It, it wasn't something that matched up with what OU was able to do. Now, I don't know how much validity there was to that rumor. 
I, I can understand that you don't want to give one, you know, donor so much control that they can kind of, um, you know, say exactly what's going on on that situation. I, I don't know. There's a lot of elements there. I don't want to speak for the Sooner Club and, and everything because I was never part of any of those conversations or anything. It's just a rumor that I heard. Yeah. Now with a new basketball arena, I think OU's kind of got their eggs in two different baskets here. It's either redo the LNC, whether that's at the side of the LNC or somewhere else on campus or pursue, you know, the project over on, uh, on uh, Rock North, Creek North and 24 yeah. up there in, in university North park. So it's kind of like wait and see if maybe the funding is going to come through for that. I think you give that one more chance. Um, but then realistically, it's, hey, as soon as OU has their next Sweet 16 run, hopefully that happens sooner than later. That's when you start that fundraising drive because it's going to be real tough yeah. to raise really anything with the current state of OU basketball. Well, and it's it's kind of an interesting position that the Josie and this administration is in right now, especially the Sooner Club, the people that are in charge of you know re, you know those donations and the capital gifts, the fundraising, things like that. Because you know currently, as we sit here right now, I I can see the argument being made for both sides of it. Like, okay, let's let's keep the LNC, but let's you know renovate the hell out of it. Let's bulldoze it. Let's start from scratch. Let's because I mean. That is something, Adam, where if you're not going to build the new arena over in University North Park area and you're not going to make it more easily accessible for the fans in Oklahoma City, in Moore, in North Norman, um, then you're in a situation to where you're forcing yourself back into the LNC, which, I mean, let's let's call a spade a spade, Adam. In terms of a incoming recruit, whether it's from the high school ranks or from the transfer portal, whether it is the students, whether it is the average ordinary fan, the LNC is just simply not a good place uh, to experience a basketball game, especially when you kind of go around, you see what Texas just built, you go a little bit further north, you partake in a game in a sold-out Gallagher-Ivy Arena. The LNC is just simply lacking from a fan experience, but also a a player experience as well. I know that we had it rocking back during the Buddy era when you know we were going to Final Fours, winning cures all. But if you're trying to elevate this basketball program, you're trying to take it one step higher going into the SEC, then I think you're at a point where you either need to bulldoze that thing and start from the ground up, or you need to just simply cut bait with it. We'll use it for a practice facility. We'll use it for you know graduation, certain things like that, and get out there, partner with the city of Norman, partner with some of your richer donor base, and build something new that not just the University of Oklahoma, not just the basketball program, but also something that the city of Norman, Norman North, Norman High School, you can utilize this. And this can be something where it's got it's being occupied year round, whether it's sporting events in high school, whether it's OU related, whether it's concerts, com- there's all sorts of different things. And you start to talk about the added revenue that that brings into the city of Norman, because if you're going to build that big basketball arena out there, you're going to want to see bars, restaurants, maybe an extra hotel or two, you know, some shopping areas that go out there, figure out a way to build that new arena and then figure out a way to surround it with some other things that make it fun for a family or, you know, some college kids. Let's go over here. Let's have dinner. Let's have a couple of beers and let's go watch OUOSU play a little ba- bit of basketball, create some added value, not just simply saying, well, shit, we're going to the to the LNC. Let's go watch it. You know, okay, you got to go to the bathroom. All right, let's go. Let's walk up the 50 flights of stairs to get all the way to the top. You got to create a new product because college basketball facilities, they have way past Oklahoma basketball and the LNC. And Joe, that's up to Joe C to figure out how to do this. 
Great question uh, from Ryan there on Twitter. Um, and sure. I think you, you nailed it on the head there, added value being the key words. This one kind of ties into that from Ben Myers, 81 on Twitter. What are three things that uh, you're going to focus on in order to turn the men's basketball program around? That's question mm-hmm. number three for Joe Castiglione. Tyler, how would you answer that if you were Joe? Well, some of it I just kind of went into when talking about the fan student, you know, engagement, creating a better home court atmosphere, a better overall venue to partake and watch a basketball game in. But number one for me, it's recruit, recruit, recruit. You've got to get players in there. Uh, I know that the transfer portal has kind of been a thorn in Oklahoma basketball side towards the end of the Lon Kruger era. It's not something that Porter Moser has kind of been able to overcome or he can build this veteran senior-led team. Obviously, Jalen Hill making the announcement he's leaving, Grant Sherfield's leaving. So uh, you've got to figure out a way to get you know good quality basketball players that come in there because, like I said just a minute ago, despite the LNC being – what it is going back during the Hollis price era, the Blake Griffin era when buddy and Spangler and Isaiah and Jordan Woodard, when they had that thing going to LNC as bad as it is, that place was rocking. So again, winning cures all figure out a way to get some better talent in there, figure out a way to build, you know, uh, build a better basketball team and program. Uh, And I think that some of the other things are going to take care of itself, but yeah, recruit, figure out a way to increase the fan slash student engagement and then the atmosphere at your games. You know, that's one of the best parts about going to a Thunder game or going to a a Nuggets game up here in Colorado. The game is kind of the focal point while you're there to watch the basketball, but there's so many other fun, cool, exciting things going on surrounding the game that just makes it all that more enjoyable for, you know, a family or a couple to want to partake and go, uh, go watch. Yeah, I agree with you on those points. The only thing that I would add to that kind of jokingly is put together your list. Find out who your top three uh, candidates are for uh, head coach of OU uh, because it doesn't look like Porter Moser. I don't uh, know we'll, if I'm we'll there yet, past, though. Uh, I mean, next year. We'll see. That's really that's okay. If, if, if he doesn't make the tournament next year, then all bets are off. Yeah. Yeah. But I then mean, that's hard to say. Already two years when... not making the tournament is, is pretty bad. And when you've got six or seven spots open on your roster right now, you're t- arguably your two best players just left once to go into the NBA. We'll see how that goes. And one just left to go to the transfer portal. <laughs> it's not a very good situation that Porter Mosier finds himself in right now. But again, I, I still think he's a fantastic coach, but you've got to get the guys in there to execute his system and play the brand of basketball that he, you know, he coaches. And yeah. I'm sorry, but the Groves think, brothers uh, are not it. <laughs> yeah. Kind of the uh, the thankless task of an athletic director is that like you you get your coaches and ideally he doesn't do anything to improve the program at that point. He's hands off. Yeah. Joe, Joe is. He just says, hey, Porter, yep. go off and run things. You have approvals on everything. And it's not up to Joe to improve the, the overall program. Um, but when things go wrong, then the athletic director mm-hmm. does get a lot of the blame. So we'll see uh, as, as things turn there. Tyler, give us question number four for Joe here. Uh, question number four here in terms of softball and the newly, uh, built loves field that's in the process of going up right now, should national players of the year winners get a statue outside of loves field that comes from at sooner underscore Oki 88 on Twitter. Adam, what do you think? Yeah, I've kind of, I've kind of chewed on that. Well, I, I don't know. I've kind of chewed on it a little bit because I wonder if that includes everyone that should have a statue. Um, but also at the same time, you, you do want a hard criteria for that because you can't be making statues for everybody. It's got to reserve, be reserved for, you know, the most elite players. 
So I, I don't know. I kind of wonder if, and a, and a softball field is a much smaller venue than a, a football field, whereas football, we have the room to put a plethora of statues around there. Mm-hmm. I kind of wonder if you do statues of coaches. So Patty would be probably the only statue for a really long time. But then is there another way to honor some of those big time players that maybe isn't a statue? So I don't know. I kind of go back and forth uh, because with the way the softball program goes, like it could just be like statue upon statue upon statue out there. Adam, I'm curious to get your take on this because to me, when this new softball complex opens up in the next 365 days, maybe a little bit less to me, there's three, there's three individuals that you can make a serious argument on why they deserve to have a, a, a statue outside of the interest of the stadium. And for me, build all three of them right now. It's Patty Gasso. She's the she's the greatest coach. I think that you can make a realistic case that by the time her, by the time her career is done in Oklahoma, she might be the most decorated, best coach in the history of the University of Oklahoma athletic department. She's, she's probably got a pretty good. She's probably got a pretty good case yeah. already as is in 2023. Patty Gasso deserves one. And then you talk about the two, not just the two best players in OU softball history, but the two most decorated hitters. In, in you know collegiate softball history, I think you can make a serious claim that Lauren Chamberlain and Jocelyn Allo both deserve a statue of their own. Now, again, you can't give them out to anybody, but those are kind of the three. If you're doing a Mount Rushmore of OU softball and outside of Marita Hines, you've got to have Patty, Jocelyn, and Lauren on there. And, you know, you could make a case for some honorable mention names, but there comes a point in time you can't have eight or nine statues outside of a ballpark. So those are the three that I think are a must. Lauren, Jocelyn, and uh, Patty. I wonder if there's a way that you could put those statues beyond the outfield wall because of the home run success that those two players had. It's not visually like the best place to put it, but it'd be kind of cool symbolically. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of different directions you could go with that. Absolutely. One. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, another question here. This is our first one for Patty Gasso that, that uh, Mike uh, Rotuno, I guess is how you say that um, yeah. submitted. You talk about, I guess the difficulty of making a starting lineup for, for each game. I'll, I'll kind of start off here on this one a little bit because they were talking about it on the broadcast against LSU yeah. earlier today was that yeah. Patty puts together three or four lines, depending on what pitcher she might faces and kind of waits until that last minute to submit that. Mm-hmm. Now I don't know that Patty probably stresses too much or has that much difficulty putting that together because as we alluded to earlier, she's got power hitters, all up and down the lineup um, it's completely different than it was maybe even as recently as like five years ago when you mm-hmm. had some slappers in the lineup some um, you know players that were effective but they certainly played a role and now it's just like you know people that can can rake and hit the ball over the fence pretty much up and down the lineup so uh, it can't be that stressful right you just put down your players and you know that all of them are going to be able to accomplish pretty much everything that uh, you put before them, regardless of uh, pretty much, you know, uh, what that order is. Yeah, I mean, Patty, she might put together three to four different lineup combinations, depending on who the opposing team is going to throw out there in the circle. But you also know that she's got the confidence that one through nine, it doesn't matter if you rotate, you know, one girl or, you know, at this position or another, her best nine are better collectively than whoever that opposing team could throw out there in the circle. So it's probably in the end, it's really not going to matter. Uh, but, you know, kind of one of the things that I've, t- that I've taken away from, you know, talking and listening to Patty over the years, she makes it a point, the off-season grind and the way that this team practices around the clock every single year, the practices, Adam, 
for OU softball are more difficult and competitive than most of the games that they actually play once they get into the regular season because their position players, their lineup is so damn good, and their pitching collectively top to bottom, especially this year with the three-headed monster of Balls, Taraco, and May, you're not going to face better competition anywhere in the country outside of maybe once you get to Oklahoma City than what you're seeing, you know, day in and day out in practice out of Marita Hines Field. So, again, it's a, it's a tough problem to have when you've got that much talent and you've got so many good quality girls that can play multiple positions and play them at a high level. Because uh, like you said, man, uh, you know, uh, Alyssa Brito, she's probably a cleanup hitter in 95% of softball programs. Uh, and, she, you know, she's uh, she's just another uh, she's just another player on this lineup because it's so good collectively up and down this roster. So, again, when you talk about the difficulty it is making a starting lineup, I honestly don't think it's that difficult because they're so damn good from top to bottom. Uh, Oklahoma's second team it could could be as competitive with probably every program in the country outside of maybe the top five to ten. So, it's a it's a good problem to have. Definitely. Let's round it out for this episode with a question for Brent Venables uh, from mm. our friends over at Just Okay Sports. Another podcast question. that uh, yep. is a fun one. <laughs> yeah. If you had to pick talent, football IQ, or new staff learning, which was the biggest reason for last season? Tyler, how do you think Brent Venables would answer this? Okay. I definitely think that all, well, again, Brent Venables would definitely answer this way different than the way that I'm about to. Uh, there's not going to be as much coach speaking in this, in this one, but I definitely think that all three of these uh, items that you listed, Adam, all three of these reasons played a part in Oklahoma going six, six and seven a year ago. But for me, when trying to isolate the biggest problem for, for me, it's not the lack of knowledge in year one in a brand new scheme or uh, a questionable coaching decision, you know, by, by this staff late in the game for me, it's the players on the field and the talent level. Oklahoma's roster as a whole has taken a pretty serious hit, in my opinion, in the last couple of seasons of the, with Lincoln Riley in town. I mean, you know, I, I hate to keep going back to the well on this guy, but anytime you're relying on a five foot 11 guy who's an above average athlete that runs a four foot or a, a, a four seven forty to be your starting safety for multiple years at a place like Oklahoma. That just shows the lack of quality talent and depth up and up and down this roster. You look at linebacker, you look at the offensive line development with high school recruits over the past couple of years. When it you know when it comes to what Oklahoma is bringing in, you know it's been mostly Bill Beanbow relying on uh, the transfer portal type guys to come in and be starters, uh, plug and play for his offensive line. So uh, look at wide receiver. Um, but to me, Adam, to kind of sum this up, Oklahoma didn't have a massive advantage in the personnel department last year like we've seen so often within this program, you know, against Big 12 competition the past 20 years. So, again, does the coaching need to be better? 100% yes. Uh, does the football IQ and becoming more comfortable in Venables and Jeff Levy's scheme need to be better? Yes, it all needs to be better. But at the end of the day, it's the Jimmys and the Joes, not the X's and the O's, and Oklahoma needs to continue to recruit top five every year and figure out a way to continue to stack these classes. That's how you bridge the gap. Uh, and especially going to the SEC, that's how you be competitive. That's the difference between 11 and one, 10 and two, and being a seven and five, eight and four team, especially with the conference that Oklahoma is headed for. So again, for me, it's players more so than it is coaching and scheme. I I pause. You disagree. Here I know you wholeheartedly disagree. Oh, he he would put um, it all on him. Not particularly. 
Not particularly. I, I, I think Brent would answer yes, all of the above. And I do think a big part of of the failures of last season falls on Brent's shoulders for trying to implement too much or from trying to, um, you know, hold too true to, you know, what his strategies were rather than try to say, Hey, let's ease in, let's uh, find success along the way and, and, you know, grow and, and uh, install new stuff, you know, progressively. And so I guess the answer that I'm going with here is football IQ because I was a big proponent last year. There was enough talent on that team to be much better than six and seven. Um, there was sure. definitely enough talent. And I think that football IQ is something that I, when you say that, you think, oh man, we have a bunch of stupid guys on the team. And that's not true. It just takes time to not learn the new systems and to, to get adjusted to uh, the new staff there. And I think we will see a lot of dividends in those returns going into 2023. Uh, and then, uh, yes, there is some talent deficiencies. I think it was mainly more in just the the depth and the amount of talent there because if one guy wasn't panning out, there was really nowhere else to turn to uh, mm-hmm. at that point. So we'll see that, you know, over time as those guys improve, understand the strategy, understand the schemes more. And so I, I do think that that football IQ is going to make one of the biggest differences. And I guess you could add in like head coaching IQ at the same time as well. Sure. And, you know, what what is Brent able to improve on from that perspective? Not just play calling or game strategy, but how is he prepping the team? How what does the spring uh, practice strategy look like? So on and so forth from there. Yeah. And, yeah. and again, I think that Brent and this he's done a lot of things to hopefully kind of address that. You know, he's kind of had to go back and you know kind of look in the mirror and, and kind of reevaluate. Uh, you know, not just how he coaches this group, but how they train, how they practice, how they prepare. Uh, and, you know, we know that Matt Wells uh, has been a huge asset to him, you know, in his first, you know, 24 months, you know, at Oklahoma, having another head coach. And you take that one step further by bringing in, you know, former North Texas head coach and Seth Luttrell, who's got a lot of familiar familiarity with this place uh, in Norman. So, again, uh, uh, Ted Roof, head coach Ted, Ted Roof yeah, from his time at Duke. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I will we'll we'll put a bow on that. We'll save that for another episode. Uh, hopefully that's not a discussion that we have to have five or six games into the season. But yeah, that's kind of all I had, Adam. Like I said, it's a uh, it's kind of an awkward point in the off season right now. Spring football kind of in the kind of in the midway point. We've got the spring game coming up here in a few weeks. Diamond Sports are kicking ass right now. Uh, at least one of them is. And like I said, uh, both gymnastics programs are going to be competing for national championships over the coming days. So uh, everybody, uh, you know, support your teams. Uh, be proud. Watch these girls perform on uh, on Friday and Saturday. And we'll see if we can't win another national championship and uh, build some more momentum on, in the other sports. Yeah, well, thanks, everyone, for listening to this week's episode of the Mainline Podcast. And we greatly appreciate your interaction mm-hmm. on Twitter there. It helps drive Absolutely. the content of this show and uh, lets us talk about the things that you guys want to hear about. So we greatly appreciate that. Make sure you're following us there. And, uh, of course, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube by searching the Mainline Podcast. We will see everyone again next week for another episode of the